We pick up today with our study of the book of 1 Samuel, and we return again to this really long part of this book of 1 Samuel, in which King Saul, who is still the reigning king of Israel, is actively seeking to put David, who is the God-ordained, God-anointed next king of Israel, to death, but David has not yet become the next king of Israel, and that is much to the chagrin, as we'll see today, of the 600 or so guys, and now consider this, who have risked pretty much everything by openly disavowing King Saul as their king. Saul's a nut at this point, guys. He is a madman. We've seen that. And so they've put themselves at risk. They put their family at risk. They put their friends at risk. They've ventured everything by openly rejecting Saul as their king and going out into the wilderness places, seeking David, finding David and saying, okay, man, you're going to be our commander and gathering around David and running around all over the place with him, mostly running away from Saul. And they sought David out, some no doubt out of a sincere affection for David, an affection that, as we'll see as we continue this narrative beyond today, grows and develops and becomes the unifying principle of this group. But they sought David out more so out of their hatred of Saul. I think at this point in the story, it's safe to say that what holds these guys together more so than a love for David is a hatred for Saul. We saw the description of these guys back in chapter 22. I want to remind you of it in verse 2. The narrator describes this band of, frankly, probably not so merry men as follows. He says, and everyone who is in distress, now why is that? Because of Saul. And everyone who is in debt to whom? To Saul, and everyone who was bitter in soul toward whom, toward Saul, did what? Gathered to David, and he became commander over them. And so get the idea here is that, all right, they love David, and that love will grow, but they really hate Saul. And more than anything else, these guys want to see Saul removed as the king of Israel. And listen, so does David. Look, no one has more cause to remove Saul than him. And I say that because notwithstanding David's dutiful, David's consistent, David's faithful, David's useful, frankly, David's miraculous service to King Saul as his own king. Okay, here's what Saul has done thus far. Three times he's tried to pin David to the wall with his spear. That's a bummer. All right, so, well, when that didn't work... Then Saul took David, who was the general over all of his forces, and he demoted him, not because this is a better use of David's talents, but because it kept David out of the front battle lines, and he put David in the front battle lines, not because that was the best use of his talents, but because he was hoping he would be killed there. And it's not unclear to David what's happening. All right, so when that didn't work, Saul then came to David with his daughter and invited him into his own family. He's not actually authentically interested in having David in his own family. In fact, that's exactly what he doesn't want. But what he did was he enticed David to run off and do this thing that surely he would die doing, trying to win his daughter's hand in marriage, snicker, snicker, laugh, laugh, wink, wink, and David survived. So then when that didn't work, he sent messengers to David's house to kill him, and David escaped and went off to Samuel and this community of prophets. So Saul sent messengers there to kill him, and then when that didn't work, Saul went there himself to kill him. And then when that didn't work, I mean, this is exhausting. Saul turned the entire nation against David, and here's how, through fear. You remember that story, Ahimelech the priest. David goes to Ahimelech and asks him for bread and the sword of Goliath, and he lies to Ahimelech. He says, listen, I'm on a mission for the king. 
And thinking that in helping David, he's helping the king. Ahimelech gives David what he's asking for, and Saul finds out. And what does he do? He sends a message to the entire nation by wiping out every man, woman, child, and animal in the household of Ahimelech. He wiped out 85 anointed priests of Israel and everyone else in their village for good measure. Only one escaped. Only one escaped. So like if you're an Israelite and you know the Bible and you understand something about the anointing of God, you understand that the anointing of God represents the ownership of God. To be anointed by God is to be marked as God's property. That's very significant today. What does Saul do with God's property? Destroys it. What will David do? Well, we'll see. But if you're an Israelite, you're sitting back going, okay, if he's willing to destroy every man, woman, child, and the family dog even, of God's property, what would he be willing to do to me if I didn't turn David in, if I didn't kill him myself, if I didn't at least say, hey, um, I've seen David and he went that way, and report accurately? By the time that we pick up our story today, David has moved his entire family out of the land of Israel. They're living in exile in Moab under the protection of the king of Moab, of all people. It's highly ironic. And David and his band of not-so-merry men are spending all their days, for the most part, fleeing from Saul, from place to place, from cave to cave, from wilderness to wilderness. And last week, as we gathered and looked at chapter 23, we saw how their last experience with Saul ended. Saul had them penned in. Saul and his superior forces finally had them where he wanted them, and he was going to wipe them out, but for the messenger that he received who brought him word that the Philistines were attacking elsewhere in the land of Israel, and he had to call off the chase of David to go deal with that. And so where we left off last week was with David and his men breathing this huge sigh of relief and heading down to this place called En Gedi. And I want to talk a little bit about Engedi before we just jump back into the story because the geography of this story has a lot to do with the understanding of the story. Engedi is an absolutely beautiful oasis in the midst of an otherwise dead, brown, lifeless desert on the western side of the Dead Sea. So let me just size it up for you, okay? It's dead and brown, it's dead and brown, it's dead and brown, it's dead and brown, it's Engedi. It's dead and brown, it's dead and brown, it's dead and brown, it's dead and brown in every direction as far as you can see. And Getty is absolutely beautiful. It's one of my favorite places to visit. And Getty means literally spring of the wild goats. And even when you go there today, there are wild goats. They're the Nubian ibex. They're all over the place. And unlike in the days of David when they would have been hunted and fearful, today you can't do anything. I mean, you can't feed them. You can't, you know, you can't mess with them. And so they're very tame and they're used to people. They'll let you walk right up to them. But the point is, and Getty is a spring. There is water in the desert. There are trees and plants and growing things all around this spring. And every living thing in the greater area around it comes there for life, including the ibex, including the rock badgers that you read about in Proverbs. You see them all over the place birds and other kinds of animal life. They all go there for the same reason that David and 600 guys go there. That's a lot of mouths to feed. That is a high quantity of water every single day to have to find. They go there because it has water and wildlife. It's the perfect spot. 
And when you go to En you go through the visitor center, and then you begin to walk up into this giant crevasse, which is basically what it is. It's like a big ravine, and as you walk into this ravine and you go up the path, it's bordered on either side, for the most part, by cliffs. So you're kind of trapped in there, and it's long and it's narrow, and you hike all the way up this thing, and it takes you a while to get there until you finally get to the end of En and it ends in a point like an arrow. And at the top of the point, coming off of the cliff, is a little waterfall that falls down into a pool, and there's like a wire around it, and there are signs that say, don't go in here, but we're Americans, so we do. And it's awesome, like it's very refreshing. It's cool, it's wonderful. And as you stand there in that water, or if you're a rule keeper outside of the water, and I wave to you, you realize that there are boulders, huge boulders, that are just sort of littered around that look like they've literally fallen out of the sky, and that's because they have. And what I mean by that is those boulders used to form the ceiling of a massive cave here at the tip of En through which in the very rear that waterfall would fall. And it would pool in that little pool, and then a stream runs out of the pool, and it runs all the way down that ravine that you hike up all the way down to the Dead Sea. And it is almost certainly the case that the story that we're going to look at today happened in that cave, which means that this is the place where David's men learned from David what I hope that we will learn from David. And that is that when it comes to discerning the will of our king, not Saul, not David, but Jesus, the one whom we're supposed to follow, the one whom we're called to live for, when it comes to discerning the will of our king, our circumstances, translation, the way that things seem to us as we look at them in the moment, are very poor guides. Are very poor guides. And when we have to choose between the way it looks to us in the moment and what God's Word says, we have to go with God's Word. And when we have to choose between the way it looks in the moment and maybe even how we want it to look badly, and that conflicts with what God is telling us in our hearts, in our conscience, we need to go with our hearts and our conscience. There are far clearer guides to God's will than our circumstances And we'll see that today and how it plays out in the life of David. We pick up our study in 1 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1, where we read that when Saul returned from following the Philistines, remember, he was called away from pursuing David to go deal with the Philistines. All right, now he's done and he's ready to focus again on David. He was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En which makes a lot of sense because, I mean, where else are you going to find enough water and food for 600 people? So then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, 3,000 of the best warriors in all of Israel. These are the Navy SEALs. These are the Army Rangers. These are the Green Beret of Israel. 3,000 of the best out of all Israel. And by the way, that's five times about the number of men that David has. He's big time outnumbered, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks, which again is this long, narrow ravine or cavern bordered on either side by cliffs that ends in a point that had a massive cave. It was later imploded by an earthquake. But in David's day, it was a massive cave. You've got the waterfall running into the back, pooling, and the stream coming out. And so then if you're David's men, just think about this, and you're hiding from Saul and his special forces in that cave, which is where they're at, okay, there's one way out. 
If you're discovered, the only way out is to fight your way through Saul's special forces who outnumber you five to one. So you don't want to be found. The odds are not with you at that point. So Saul comes to En Gedi, and it says that he came to the sheepfolds, by the way. So there are animals gathering there, shepherds bringing their sheep and whatnot. But why? Because, well, there's water and stuff to eat. And it says there where there was a cave. I'm going to add the word giant cave because I've stood there, and it would have been a really big cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. All right, now I'm going to give you more information that you really want on this, okay? And not just because all men are really middle school boys. Um, I'm going to use the language of preschool. This is actually important. Saul went in to do a number two, okay? Number two. Now, why is that significant? Because it places him in the single most vulnerable position possible outside of sleep, which we'll see in a couple chapters. We'll see it again. Saul is a man. He goes to the bathroom alone. He comes in, he lays down his weapons, he undresses, he pulls out the sports page. He is totally distracted. And I'll tell you what else he is. He is completely blind and deaf to the presence of David and 600 guys who hate him and want more than anything in life to see him die. Why? Because they're all in the dark part of the cave. They can look forward toward the light and see him perfectly. And they've got this little waterfall running into this pool of water that creates an ambient noise that masks all of their discussions, all of their shufflings, all of their movements as this water echoes through the cave. Saul is in a totally vulnerable position. And it says that now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. Obviously, they got word that Saul had arrived with his special forces, and they huddled up in the back, and they're standing there in the dark, and they see, lo and behold, Saul walk in alone and, you know, everything that he then did. And so the men of David said to David, what I'm sorry to say that I probably would have said to David in that moment as well, we are passionate creatures, all of us overrun by our passions, overrun by our desires, overrun by our pain, by our sufferings, by our fears and uncertainties, and so seeking to take things into our own hands. I'm sure that I'm not the only one who feels this way. So they say to David what I think I probably would have said in that moment as well. They said, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Okay, now I kind of went back and went, where did God say that to David exactly? Because as you study through his life, that's not in there. So it's likely, at least, that these guys are embellishing, but I think that you can understand why they're embellishing. These guys, their friends, their families have been grievously injured by Saul, are running and living and huddling in fear by Saul, are being actively hunted by Saul, have staked and claimed and bet everything on Saul's demise, everything, and no one more so than David. And so then miracle upon miracles, here they are huddled in the back of the cave hoping to be able to escape Saul and his 3,000 special forces who outnumber them five to one, and Saul himself comes into the cave, you know, to go to the bathroom. 
And he puts down his weapons, and he's in a state of undress, and he's got the sports page out, and he's checking the box scores from the previous day, and he is totally distracted. And Saul's men come to David in this moment, and they go, "Um, hey, man, uh, like, you know, if God wrote this in the sky, I'm not sure that it could be more clear. I mean, look at this. David, you just won the lotto. You didn't even buy a ticket. Like, you're not even playing, and you're getting the check. It is written in the stars, my friend. Your enemy has just been handed over to you by the Lord. And so now for your good and for the good of your family, little reminder, who are in exile in Moab, for our good and for the good of our families who are also fleeing in fear and uncertainty, and how about then also for the good of this nation that is living in fear, under and languishing under the rule of a madman, You need to go up there and kill this guy, and in killing this guy, take what God, by means of your anointing, has already said is rightfully yours. It's pretty persuasive. It's pretty persuasive. So now notice what David does. It says, then David arose with all of his men watching him from behind, because again, he's stepping toward the light, so they can see every move he makes. And they're all kind of quietly giving each other high fives because they're assuming he's going to go up there and kill Saul. So then David arose and stealthily snuck up behind Saul and stabbed him in the heart. And then he dressed Saul again in his clothing and got rid of any evidence of any other reason for Saul to go into the cave. And then he took Saul's own sword out of the sheath, and then he placed it on the ground in front of Saul, and he positioned it so the point went right into the place where he had stabbed Saul in the heart. And then he forced his dead body, sorry for the graphics, down upon that sword and made it look like Saul, who was a known, well, nut, had taken his own life in despair out in the desert had been so frustrated by his attempts to find David again and again and again, only to come all the way to En Gedi and not find him yet again, and decided to end it all. It's not what he does. But it's not a terribly unreasonable thought, is it? It very well may have worked. All right, then David arose, all the guys watching, lots of peer pressure. They're all giving each other high fives because they're assuming he's going to go kill Saul. And he stealthily sneaks up behind Saul, and he takes his knife, and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And then afterward, what? What happens? David's heart struck him. The Spirit afflicted his conscience because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So you can imagine what his heart would have done if he had cut off Saul's head. God's speaking to him in his heart. Now, what's the big deal about the robe? Well, in the ancient Near East, the robes of the kings spoke and represented their glory and their majesty and their power and their right to reign and rule as king. This really is an act of rebellion on the part of David. He's coming along and he's, he's knocking off a piece of Saul's right to rule, if you will. He's challenging him as the king. So David cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And then David, who had to now sneak back and explain to his 600 men why he didn't kill Saul, said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's what? Because it's the key, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing, and now he says it again, 
that he is the Lord's anointed. And again, why does that matter? Because in God's clear and unambiguous word, which is not muddled with our desires, and it's not muddled with our passions, and it's not muddled with our pressures, and it's not muddled with our agendas. It's not muddled at all, actually. David knows from that clear and unambiguous word that Saul, by means of his anointing, like it or not, is God's property. And what David is saying is, guys, look, I understand what these really intense circumstances seem to suggest, but this guy is God's property, and I'm not going to destroy God's property. You know, God's going to do that, and he doesn't need my help. And so then we read that David persuaded his men with these words, and he had to. and did not permit them to attack Saul themselves, which they clearly intended to do when he came back with nothing more than a little bit of the robe. And so then Saul finished with the sports page, and he rose up, and he got dressed, and he gathered his weapons, and he left the cave in safety, and he went on his way. And David's men learned that when it comes to discerning the will of our king, meaning that of King Jesus, not Saul or David, okay, our circumstances, not always a great guide. And that as a guide, they are subservient to the clear guidance of the Bible and even to the clearer than our circumstances guidance of our own hearts, of our own conscience, of what the Spirit is telling us is right and wrong as we try to decide what to do. And by the way, that's true even when that prolongs your pain and forestalls your passions and delays your gratification, which it clearly did for David and all 600 of his guys. Clearly. And I'm not saying that God never speaks to us through providentially arranged circumstances. I think that he does. I just think that when you have to choose between what you think are your providentially arranged circumstances and what you think that they're saying to you and what God says in his word, which is different, you have to go with his word, or when you have to choose between what you think your circumstances are saying and what God in your own heart and mind and conscience is saying, go with your heart, mind, conscience. It's a guide, but it's incredibly less reliable than the clear and unmuddled word of God, than the promptings in the heart and in the mind of one who is seeking daily to delight himself or herself in the Lord. Because if you think about it, you know, it is amazing, and we all do this, what we can convince ourselves to be the will of God for us based on our interpretation of our circumstances as we see them through the lenses of our pain or of our suffering or of our passions or of our impatience or of our selfishness or of our desires or of our agendas, meaning through what we really want to be, well, when we really want that interpretation to be the will of God for us. And I'm going to give you some examples, and they're difficult ones. But we all do this. I think, for example, that it's easy to convince yourself that God would have you to marry somebody who does not believe in Jesus. You know what? Because the stars have lined up. Saul's in the cave. Like miracle upon miracle, every box is checked but this one. And, and, you know, I mean, he or she is good with you being a Christian, and you can raise your kids that way, and everything is fine. I mean, like, it's just like, whoo, there is no denying it. All the voices behind you are going, you know, yeah, I mean, what does God's Word say? Because it's unmuddled. It's dispassionate. 
and it's clear. I think it's easy to convince ourselves that we need more all the time that we need more. So I need to live in this, and I need to drive this, and I need to own this, and I need to buy this, and I need to go here, and I need to go there, and I need to belong to this, and I need to be able to do all of these things. And I mean, look, God has provided for me to be able to do all of these things. I mean, look at all the resources he's given me. Look at all the opportunities he's given me. Look at all of this stuff. And clearly, I deserve it, and he wants me to have it. Okay, well, maybe. But is it so much that it impairs or inhibits or even prohibits your ability to be generous toward God, to worship Him with your wealth, to tithe 10%, and then beyond that, to be generous with the poor and the needy. Because if it is, then that's a problem because He speaks clearly to that in His Word, and it's dispassionate. It's unmuddled with the bigger, better desire that every one of us struggles with and sees the world through. I think that it's easy to convince yourself that God would have you leave your spouse for another person particularly when things aren't going well with your spouse, and it's great with this other person. Like, they get me, they listen to me, they value me, they respect me, they love me, they fill my tank in a way that, you know, the person that I'm married to didn't. And I mean, you know, isn't it true that everyone in my life and everyone in her or his life thought that this was a colossal mistake for us to get married in the first place? So really, I'm just curing a defect. And as it turns out, they were right. And doesn't God want me to be happy? And do you have biblical grounds for divorce? Because that's in there. And it's clear. And maybe what God wants you to be is holy. Maybe what God wants you to be is happy in Him. Maybe what God wants you to do is to take this and by His power and grace, create something that the world can see and recognize the reality of Him in. Maybe it's not about me, and maybe it's not about you. In fact, not maybe. It just it isn't. And that's not clear through our passions. It's not the message we get from the people in the cave with us. But it's very, very, very clear in God's Word. And so the point is that when you have to choose between your circumstances and Scripture or your circumstances and what your own heart and conscience is saying... Okay, go with Scripture and your own heart every time. David does that. He follows the Bible, and he follows his own heart, and then he does it again in verse 8. It says in verse 8 that afterward, meaning right after Saul gathers up his stuff and folds up the sports page and walks safely out of the cave, David also arose, now with all 600 of his guys going, hey, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are you doing? This is nuts. No, 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 no. Because again, one way out, they're trapped. So fight your way through Saul's special forces who outnumber you five to one. That's the only way out. David arose and he went out of the cave and he called after Saul. So he shouts after him, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, no doubt in stunned silence, David bowed with his face to the earth. And he paid homage even to this man. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, it's a word of sight. He's saying, Look, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some in that cave told me to kill you. But I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, he says, 
See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord, he says, judge between me and you. And now notice this. He says, may the Lord avenge me against you. But here's what I'm not going to do, he says. But my hand shall not be against you. In other words, I will not ever seek to avenge myself against you, period, even though notwithstanding everything I've done for you. You've tried three times to pin me to the wall with your spear. You demoted me, hoping I'd die in battle. You tricked me with your daughter, trying to kill me. You sent messengers to my house and to the prophets. You came yourself to try to kill me. You've turned the nation against me, you murderous guy. Even though my family lives in exile, as does the people that I'm running around here with, and we are running around nonstop in very uncomfortable places, to get away from you, even though you have wronged me big time and completely in an unjust fashion. You had no cause for this. I will not avenge myself against you. And here's why, because God's Word says don't. And so does David's heart. And it doesn't just say that to him. And it doesn't just say that about Saul, the Lord's anointed. It says it to us too. Kind of a tough message as well, isn't it? You know, one of the many things that the gospel compels us to do, compels us to do, is to let go of the many wrongs, the many crimes that are committed against us in this life, and the intense desires that we have. And man, they are intense. To seek to avenge ourselves, particularly when Saul comes walking into our cave, and the stars line up. And you win the lotto, you didn't even buy a ticket. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? How can I not cut this person down? And everyone in the cave with you is going, holy cow, I mean, delivered on a silver platter. Are you kidding me? You'll never get another opportunity like this. You know what they've done to you? Let us remind you. One of the things the gospel compels us to do is to let go of the wrongs committed against us, those crimes and the passions to avenge ourselves, and to entrust vengeance to the Lord. And He will, either in this life or in the next, perfectly mete out justice. Can you believe Him for that? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will avenge you. And you know what else He says in His Word? He says that we're to love our enemies... Oh, no problem. That's easy. Uh, we're to bless those who persecute us. Oh, yeah, that's my instinctive nature. That's what I want to jump right up and do. Oh, bless you in the name of Jesus, you know. Bam. We're to pray for those who injure us. We're to actively work, frankly, for the salvation and redemption of those who wrong us, which is exactly what David is doing here. I mean, if you ask yourself, why did David go out of this cave? The circumstances sure said, stay where you are. Did they not? <laughs> You're going to out yourself and risk your life, but not just you, all 600 of your guys, who if you took a vote, it would have been 600 to 1 that we just stay in the cave. To go out there and address Saul. Why did David do that? He's pleading 
for the heart of this incredibly wicked man. He's bargaining. He's pleading for his sanity. He's he's pleading for his soul. He's calling him to repent and see the wickedness in his ways and maybe find his way to the Lord after all. And if you did your personal worship this week and you're familiar with the rest of the story then because you studied through it, you know that Saul repents and Saul weeps. Saul takes his soldiers and leaves, and David is able to go safely from there. But if you know the rest of the story as we move forward, well, that's short-lived. He will hunt David again, and David will again have opportunity to kill him, incidentally. And he will again not kill him, and he will again risk everything to plead for his soul. I think David's thinking, well, you know what, if he can save the soul of Tom and maybe of you guys, maybe of 600 guys, maybe of himself, then he could save Saul too. So bottom line, when it comes to discerning the will of your king who is Jesus, okay, your interpretation of your circumstances are oftentimes a very poor guide. And when you discover that they are in conflict with what God says dispassionately, clearly, emphatically in His Word, you have to go with the Word. That's your calling. That's His will. It's not in question. And when also your own conscience is afflicting you, and that is different from the way that you're reading, the way things are playing out for you in the moment, through whatever glasses you're wearing, you need to go with your heart as well. God does speak through our circumstances, but in terms of clarity, they're way down the road and they're far behind His Word and the heart of one who is seeking daily to delight Himself in the Lord. So, with all that in mind, let me ask you, number one, what are you trying right now to convince yourself is the will of God for you that you know in God's Word? Okay, well, He says something else. Or maybe even that in your attempts to Convince yourself it's God's will. He's come to you, and in your own conscience, in your own heart, He has said, you know what? You're not reading this right. This is not right. Secondly, what wrongs are you seeking to avenge yourself of? That everyone in your life that's in the cave with you, you know, like all 600 of them, are in unison going, this is your shot. Here it is. You're never going to get a better opportunity than this that you need to entrust to the one who says, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. Lastly, what wrongdoer do you need to learn to love and to bless and to prayerfully and patiently pursue that perhaps you might win them for Christ? Because listen, I mean, if he can save us, he can save them too. So reflect on that, okay? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You for Your Word and for Your Spirit. We thank You for the amazing stories of these amazing people that You raised up for us to learn from as well. Lord, for the lessons that we can tease out of these stories that teach us about You and about Your ways and then can take and by Your Spirit, apply to our lives in remarkably poignant ways. 
God reveal to us what we seem to see because of our passions. And give us faith, Lord, in your word and to do what it says in your word instead. Raise up a community of people who daily delight themselves in you and become sensitive to the promptings of your spirit, to the accuracy then of what you're saying there too. And give us courage to give you the vengeance that we seek to take for ourselves. And give us faith by which we can love even those who commit crimes against us. Do these things for your glory and for our good we ask in Christ's name. Amen.